0: You will notice, I think, that Winnie the Pooh is not on the screens any longer. We are moving on today to a new series of sermons that I am calling After Words. I wanna talk about what the Bible says comes after. And so these are words about what comes after. After our death. After time, after existence as we know it, what comes next? I'm calling these next few sermons After Words. It's a topic about which people tend to have a great deal of both interest and also confusion, I find. In my experience, there are very few places where you will hear more non-biblical statements than at a funeral. People come to funerals and they say all sorts of things. And no, I'm not just picking on non-Christians. Christians say all sorts of things at funerals that contradict what the Bible says. Many of our perspectives about what we think comes next are actually based on folklore, or based on cultural tradition, based on misunderstandings of what the Bible says or means. They're based on the influence of New Age philosophy, Or just plain old ignorance as to what the Word of God actually says. I hear it all the time, but I have noticed that a funeral usually isn't the proper place to correct mistakes, especially if you're the pastor. Um, So we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Instead, I want to take this opportunity on Sunday mornings to explore the Bibles after words. The challenge, of course is that there's no single place in the Bible where we can turn and just on one page read everything in terms of a detailed description of what comes next. Most of the biblical references to after are pretty vague and they're scattered throughout scriptures. There's a lot of simile and there's a lot of metaphor and there's a lot of different layers of things to try and understand. One of my favorite authors and theologians, a man by the name of N.T. Wright, has said that These are just a set of signposts pointing into a dense fog. But he quickly adds that doesn't mean that they aren't true. It just means that we cannot always fully see what it is that they are pointing to. And so we're gonna spend, oh, I think it's seven weeks or so talking about the afterwards. And today specifically, I want to talk about afterwards about eternity. If we're going to presume to talk about what comes after this life, I thought that really the logical place to start, where we need to be on today, week one, is convincing ourselves that something outside the boundary markers of birth and death actually exists. Like, let's set this whole series up by just talking about eternity itself and its very nature. We must be convinced that there is something beyond the boundaries of human birth and human death. And if we were convinced of that, we certainly wouldn't be alone. Uh, The General Social Survey, which is a a secular survey done of the entire American population every year, tells us that roughly 70% of people believe in some sort of existence after death. Some sort of being, some sort of existing after we die. Chances are, though, that most of those respondents don't have a very clear understanding about what the Bible says about eternity or our role in it. And so that's where we want to be today, and I'm going to dive right in. The most important thing that we need to understand as a starting point for this is that God exists outside of time. God exists outside of time. This is the consistent testimony of scripture. Now, I want to clarify what I mean by that. When I say God exists outside of time, I don't just mean that God is really, really old and that he's going to last forever. I don't just mean that God pre-exists the beginning and pre-exists the end. What I mean is that he is literally not subject to the boundaries of time. And we're going to get, I think, a little bit into quantum physics for, for a moment. If, if you're that kind of a guy this morning, this is the kind of thing that's, that, that's going to excite you. If you're not, don't worry, I'll be done in like two seconds here. But the point is, we aren't saying that God goes from here to there in the same sense that you and I live one day after another. We experience time, and time is bounded, and what we are saying is that God exists outside of those boundaries. Let me tell you what I mean. What are the first four words of the Bible? Most of you, many of you would know this. The very first four words, Genesis chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning, God. Okay, we would go on and created the heavens and the earth, and so on and so forth. But we're not worried in this moment about what he Did We just are noticing that the very first four words of the entire Bible say, in the beginning, and there he is. So it's the beginning, it's the first boundary marker of time, and he's already there. Why? Because he's outside of it. The Apostle John, when he wrote his account of the life of Jesus, The Gospel of John, as we call it, he echoed these first four words. He says, in the beginning, and then he used his favorite nickname for the Son of God. He says, in the beginning, the word was. Listen to those verb tenses again. Oh, we've had quantum physics and we've had uh, grammar already. It's gonna be a good morning. In the beginning, the word was. Not in the beginning, the word started. How can you have a beginning... If something already was, well, that something must be outside the boundaries of what that time itself is. Look, that's all a little bit heady for some, I think, but let's put it this way. Psalm 90, which is one of the most ancient psalms in all of our Bible, written traditionally we understand by Moses. Psalm 90 says this, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world from beginning to end, you are God, and it goes on a few lines later to say, for you, a thousand years are as a passing day, as brief as a few night hours. Most of us are probably familiar with that last turn of the phrase, right? For God, a thousand years are like a day, and sometimes we turn it over, and a day is like a thousand years. How, how could that be? Look, we are not saying that God's watch is broken. We are not saying that God has infinite patience and, and just kind of sits around and doesn't worry about the passage of time. We are describing the fact that God actually stands outside the passage of time. He is not bounded by time. God exists out of, outside of time. You and I experience our moments and our days sequentially. Nothing can stop or alter that. The clock keeps on ticking, ticking, ticking. The seconds go by. The minutes go by. The hours, the days, the weeks, the years, the decades, the millennia go by, and nothing can stop that. Even if we are to presume that someday we're going to experience eternity in the future, I think it's best to assume that we will likewise experience it one moment at a time. Not so for God. He stands outside time. Elsewhere in the Psalms, the psalmist writes, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You see, before the moments that we're existing in right now, before the moment that you were born, before any of the moments that you or I could look at or measure or describe, God already knew them. Why? Because he has a perspective that allows him to see and to be. He is not bounded by time. We often say God is omnipresent, which is kind of a fancy way of saying God is everywhere. There's no place you can go where he doesn't occupy that space. But can I suggest to you that in order to be omnipresent, in order to be everywhere, God must also be when. He must exist in all times. God's presence can be found in all places, but God's presence can also be found in all times. You know what that means? That means that no matter how you might feel in this moment, God is not more distant than he used to be. No matter how you might feel about the current state of your relationship with God. And brothers and sisters, we could raise our hands here. We all know what that feels like. We've all experienced the mountaintop highs and then the lonely valleys of our spiritual lows. And we have this sense that God used to be near and now he is distant, but an omnipresent God who stands outside of time says, I am in the same place now that I always was. I have not grown distant from you. And we can take confidence in that. We can know today that no matter what, God is not only everywhere, God is everywhere. When? Where is he right now? He's in the same place he was when you first met him. Where is God in the midst of this situation? Where is God in the midst of this circumstance? He's in the same place he was when he baptized you in the Holy Spirit. Where is God in the moment of my grief? Where is God in the moment of challenge? He's in the same place he was when you met him and turned your life over to him. He hasn't stopped being because he stands outside of time. And we take confidence in that. Knowing that God exists outside of time leads us to the next thing we need to understand, which is this, God created his people for his eternal kingdom. Now, both parts of that sentence, I think, are important. The first part says, God created his people. Right? This is like, I think they're probably handling this in kids' church today. This is pretty basic stuff. It's the other half of that verse we quoted, in the beginning, God created right? God created his people. What that means is that you and I, we were created. We do have a beginning. In that sense, we are not eternal. We do not stand outside of time. I think sometimes we have this kind of cultural image of of babies lined up in some sort of baby factory in heaven, and God knows them all and is calling them by name, just waiting to deliver them to people, right? Right? But that's not really what anything close to how the Bible describes how life begins. You and I did have a beginning. You and I do have a beginning point, and in that sense we don't stand outside of time. The Bible refers to a specific moment when each of us was woven together by God. Now, forgive me if that tramples on some of your romanticized notion of of what it's like to be a baby in heaven. Kelly Greco will tell you that's a common conversation here in the office, one of the deep theological debates. Can we say, Kelly, that we have sometimes, right? Babies in heaven. Okay, the babies in heaven. There we go. I told you I'd get to it. Forgive me if I'm stepping on any toes here, but I think there is a deeper, richer, far more wonderful confidence in knowing that there was a moment when your creator God wove you together. He took a moment for you. The uh, patron saint of Hobson Road Community Church, I think, is Matthew West. Uh, And one of his, his early songs says he took a little extra time with you. Anybody been a Matthew West fan long enough to remember that? Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that. There is a deep, rich confidence in knowing that, no, you weren't mass-produced in a factory in heaven. No, you didn't sit on your thumbs waiting and waiting and waiting for God to finally say, "Ah, I guess you could be a Kish. Right? No, there was a divine moment. When God created you, it's important to know that you were created, but even though we don't stand outside of time in the same way that God does, we were created to exist in an eternal kingdom. We were designed by God with the intent that we should live forever in his kingdom. And that's why speaking to followers of Jesus, the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when they die, but check this, not we will be raised, they. What's the they, folks? It's the bodies they will be raised to live forever. Because this is another important point that we're going to look at in more detail another Sunday, not today, but I want to give you a little spoiler here, a little spoiler alert. God's eternal plan for his people involves their bodies. It involves their bodies, and so this idea that my soul is the only part of me that is eternal, that heaven is this place where spirits kind of float around in the mist and exist forever, that is absolutely not the way the Bible describes our eternal future. Afterwards, about eternity, into eternity, you will have a body very much like the one you've had throughout your life. Pretty awesome, right? I mean, not all of you are going to look this good, but uh, afterwards into eternity, you will have a body very much, very, not exactly. We'll talk about that another week, but very much like the one you had throughout your life. That's a topic for another day. The point here is that we were created for an existence that goes far beyond the one we can see or touch or feel here. This isn't what we were created for. And that can cause us to feel deep yearnings, right? Yearnings that we don't always understand. Sometimes those yearnings can be very, very comforting. (coughs) But sometimes they can cause us pain. And the Bible understands this. It shows us how we sometimes experience both hope and despair. Hope, but also despair. Both of those are common, common feelings in this yearning we have for a world that we do not fully see or understand those signposts pointing into the fog. There's a movie that I can't really, in good conscience, recommend from the pulpit. um, So I'll just talk about it anyhow. In 1988, uh, Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall starred in Coming to America. You don't have to raise your hand if you saw it because that would make people pray for you. Um, They did a sequel of this just this last year, which I don't know what the record is for the longest period of time between a movie and its sequel, but I was pretty impressed. I didn't see the sequel, but I may or may not have seen the original movie several times. Um, I I was reminded of coming to America when when I was thinking about this point. There's this wonderful tension in that movie. If you're not familiar with the story, Eddie Murphy plays the part of a rich, beyond your wildest dreams, African prince, who has rubies and gems and jewels and gold and palaces and silver and everything you could ever, ever imagine. But it's time for him to get married and he doesn't want to marry the, the type of woman that his parents would choose for him to marry. And so he takes, his trusty servant, Arsenio Hall, who also lives in the lap of luxury. And together the two of them come to America and they they come looking for a wife for this young prince. But Eddie Murphy decides that they wanna go incognito. He doesn't want to find somebody who will marry him for his wealth or for his riches or for his heritage. He wants to find somebody who will love him for who he is. And so they dress down and and they, you know, where could someone find a a woman fit to marry a, a, a prince? Queens, New York, so they go to Queens and and they share an apartment in a a slum. And he gets a job at at a McDonald's, not really, but if you know the movie, you you understand, a fast food restaurant, and he lives as a janitor and, and just goes from the top of the social structure to the bottom. Eddie Murphy does because he's convinced that this is the way he's going to find the woman who will be his true love. And Arsenio Hall really has no say in the matter. He's just there at the whim of, of his, his prince, Eddie Murphy. And he's there to help, um, but he doesn't really want to be there. And he doesn't really belong there. And the movie plays on that tension because there are moments when Arsenio Hall is very, very excited because he knows the mission and he understands the mission and he gets that there is coming a day when he is gonna return to paradise and be in the lap of luxury. So let's do this thing. Let's get this party started. Let's make this thing happen so that we can go home. But there's other moments in the movie where he's like, why am I even here? Why am I even here? And you get the sense that the character would do anything not to be where he is. And I just think that that struggle, that tension is very much what it's like to be a Christian who knows somewhere deep within him or herself that we're destined for a place, that we belong in a place and this ain't it. And sometimes that can give us great hope, right? But sometimes it leaves us in a place of despair. The Bible knows about this struggle and it does a good job, I think, of capturing it. On one hand, we struggle through an existence that ultimately will not last. And like those signposts pointing into a dense fog, we can't fully see what we were made for. The author of Ecclesiastes in his memoir, chapter three, verse 11 says, God has planted eternity in the human heart But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. It's like we know it's there, but we can't see it. And that hurts. But on the other hand, on the other hand, knowing that we were created for an eternal kingdom gives us real reason to hope. Because even in the midst of trouble, we can be confident in what lies ahead. Again, I turn to the Apostle Paul, this time in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, For our present troubles are small and they won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. There's that hope. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. We fix our gaze into that dense fog knowing that the signposts are true. For the things that we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. There's despair sometimes, but oh, there's hope. Oh, there's hope. Church, maybe you needed just to hear that word today. The things that you see now will not last forever. The things that you see now, the trials that you see, the tribulation, the struggle that you see, Will not last forever. Could we unpack that a little bit? The riches that you chase will not last forever. The glory that perhaps your flesh desires will not last forever. So fix your eyes not on that. Whatever it is that you see right now, fix your eyes not on that, but what is unseen, because that will. Last forever. So yes, there's an eternity that we cannot see. And you might think that as a Christian, our best move then is to just settle in and hunker down and wait for eternity to begin. You might think that our, our best move is to not get too disappointed if we can hardly help it, while we wait for the next world to start. You might think that, but you'd be wrong. Because for the Christian eternity begins now not later eternity begins now not later folks this is the gospel of jesus the good news isn't that god exists outside of eternity and that his people are destined for an eternal kingdom i already said that but that's not the good news that's just the news right but that's not the good news That's not the good news that Jesus came to proclaim. Read the Old Testament. We already knew that. Before Jesus came, we already knew that God existed outside of time. We read from the ancient Psalms, they knew that God existed outside of time. Before Jesus came, we already knew that God's people were destined to live in that kingdom with him as king forever and ever. We already knew that. Read the Old Testament. It affirms that again and again. We didn't need Jesus to come and tell us, That God exists outside of time. That his people are destined to live in eternity with him. And that sometimes that kind of stinks. We didn't need Jesus to tell us. That's not the good news. But do you know what the good news is? The good news is that that eternity begins now, not later. That's what Jesus came to say. Jesus came to say, that hope that your ancestors have yearned for, that hope that burns within your heart when you realize this is not my home, that hope, you can live into that hope starting now. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus said, you don't have to wait any longer. The message that Jesus came to proclaim is that by following him, we can begin our eternal existence right now. We see it again and again in his words. Here's one of my favorites in John chapter three, verse 36. He says, and anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. Can we go back to the grammar lesson? Has eternal life as in present Tense. Jesus could have said, "This is not a problem with the ancient language." He absolutely could have said, "Anyone who believes in God's Son will have eternal life." He could have said that, but he did not. He said, "Anyone who believes in God's Son will." Or, I'm sorry. He said, "Anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life." If you don't want to remember John three chapter, I'm sorry, John three verse thirty-six you could rewind just a few paragraphs to John 3:16. Many of you would already have that committed to heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but has eternal life. Same idea, same idea. Jesus is coming to proclaim the eternity that you yearn for is no longer something that you have to wait for. It begins Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, the eternal kingdom of heaven is not something that you begin after you die. Eternal life in the kingdom of heaven is something you have begun now. And the Holy Spirit wants to empower you to live like it. So this is why the gospel demands that we live life differently. This is why we do not fight the battles of this world with the weapons of this world in order to get the people of this world into positions of authority in this world. I'm gonna say that again. This is why we do not fight the battles of this world with the weapons of this world in order to get the people of this world into positions of authority in this world. And if you're wondering, yes, that is a direct reference to the church's recent obsession with politics. This is why we cannot be that people. It is long past time for the church to holster its worldly weapons and start acting like loyal subjects of King Jesus, like we're supposed to be. Now look, it's not, about, it's, it's, it's not that we don't care about this world. We need to be careful and, and, and hear me well, that's not what I'm saying. It's not that we just go through this life saying, it doesn't matter, we're not staying here anyhow, because spoiler alert, that's also not true. Okay, we don't go through life. This, this has implications and all sorts of issues that are before us today that, that maybe we don't think about in terms of our faith, like the way that we care for the planet and the way that we treat other people and the way that we do different things. Look, this is part of the gospel. I'm not suggesting we ignore those things. I'm not saying they don't matter. It's, it's, it's not that we ignore problems and suffering. It's just that we're subject to a different kingdom. We are citizens of a different nation. The Bible literally says of a holy nation. My family last month uh, took a a week's vacation out in San Francisco to see the sights and visit some family that I haven't seen in quite some time. We stayed in a hotel and the hotel had an outdoor pool, and thanks be unto Jesus, an outdoor hot tub. it's chilly in San Francisco. If you've never been, this is not California Beach, right? It's chilly in San Fran, even in the middle of July. And so we swam in the pool a couple of times, but it, it, it took a little it took a little initiative to get into that pool, right? And so the last night we were there, we, we decided we're gonna go swimming one more time, we're gonna swim in the pool. And here's what we're gonna do. We are gonna swim in that pool and play as long as we possibly can stand it. And then just before hypothermia sets in, we're gonna jump out and run over to that hot tub and and you know, like a couple of boiled hot dogs, we're just gonna warm up and then we're gonna call it a night. So that's what we did. We got into the pool, we played, my family was there. Uh, we had mom with us and, and as I said, I have some other family that lives out that way that came and, and, and played in the pool with us that night. So. Marco Polo and and sharks and minnows, and a little bit of everything. We're just having fun in in the pool. The sun's going down. It's getting really, really chilly. And just about the time our fingertips are turning blue, it's like, all right, we've had all we can have. Let's get out and run. Don't walk. Run to that hot tub over there and warm up, which is what we did. We got out of the pool and we ran to the hot tub and we stepped in it and realized the heat pump was broken. and the water was like lukewarm-ish. I mean, marginally better than the pool, but not enough to return circulation to the places you wanted circulation right in that moment. <laughs> and so we get into this pool and it's complete, you know, is, it, is there a button we need to press? Is there a thing we need to do? No, nah, it's just totally broken. One of the hotel uh, workers walked by, I said to him, this thing is broken. Is there, is there a breaker you can reset or something? And he said, no, don't worry, it's not broken. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how you would know that, but it, it very clearly is broken. And so we, we sat in that hot tub for just a moment or two and then got up and, and toweled off and ran back to the rooms and changed into our jammies and, and called it a night. That was, that was it. Here's the thing. And, and the reason I want to tell you that story, um, I, I hate plumbing. I just, Jimmy Cahaw, can I get an amen from you on that? I mean, I know enough to be dangerous, literally, you know, as a self-help guy, Mr. Fix-It around the house. But I, I hate plumbing. And the reason I hate plumbing is because there, there's no such thing as good enough. You know, with other fix-it problems around the house, you, you can kind of fake it till you make it. But with plumbing, it's either right or it's wrong. There's no margin of error, right? And, 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 and nothing's cheap, by the way. I hate plumbing. I hate when things, when things break. I just, it, just oh, it makes me upset and tense, and I forget why I was saying that right now. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, hate, I hate plumbing problems. And so, you know, to have a pool and to have the heat pump broken or the circulator or something, you know, who knows? It could have been a million things that were wrong with that. Just like my hair's turning gray even thinking about it, except it actually wasn't. That, that whirlpool, that hot tub, it was broken, right? Thousands of dollars probably to fix that, I don't know. and I didn't give it a second thought. I toweled off, I got in my jammies, I went to bed. I didn't think about that broken pool other than to laugh about the story until I wrote it in my notes this morning. Never gave it a second thought. Let me tell you a second story. The other day, I was cleaning the bathroom in my house, cleaning out the, the shower and, and bathtub. And as I did so and was rinsing the the bathtub down, I noticed that the water wasn't draining. And without even skipping a beat, I went and grabbed my tools and pulled that drain apart and got at the clog, rotted it out, got the clog, done. Fixed it, took care of it right away. And that was a little project, you know, a little clog in a bathtub drain. Why was one of those so much more important to me? Why was one something that I was willing to walk away from, but the other one was something that I literally didn't want another minute to go by before I addressed it? What's the difference? One problem seemed to be really big, but it pertained to a place that I wasn't meant to stay in very long. I was leaving the next day. The other problem seemed to be pretty small, but it pertained to the place that I call home. And it mattered so much that I dropped everything else to take care of it. I think that too many Christians think that their divine role is to just suffer through the broken hot tubs of this life while waiting helplessly for the next life to begin. And that kind of mentality makes life seem overwhelming and it makes religion seem boring and out of touch. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that. Christian, follower of Jesus, beloved brothers and sisters, can I tell you what the Bible says? You don't live here. You're just a temporary resident. You don't live here. Your status here is not important or relevant to your divine purpose. Your allegiance to a divine king is what matters. And he's the one who already sits enthroned on high. There's nothing else you need to wait for. There's nothing else you need to wait for. And I just think it's time for us to start living as the eternal citizens of God's kingdom that King Jesus says we are. So what does that mean? Well, it means that just like the Roman citizens in the days of Jesus or the Apostle Paul, think about that. The New Testament, you're probably familiar with the fact that it talks about citizenship, a handful of different places. Citizens of heaven, our citizenship is not here. This is the kingdom we belong to. This is one of the major themes of the New Testament. And almost all of these are taken either from Jesus or Paul. And both of them are living at the height of the power and influence of the Roman Empire. So yes, they're thinking about Rome. That's the metaphor that's on their mind as they're saying in writing these things. So what does that mean for us? It means that just like the Roman citizens in the days of Jesus and Paul, just like them, we live a little bit differently than everybody else. It means that the rules are different for us. It means that we have privileges that the others don't have. Do you remember the story when Paul was arrested and they were like, we're gonna whip you. And he's like, oh, are you allowed to whip a Roman citizen? And they were like, we're definitely not gonna whip you. See, we have privileges. We have privileges that not everybody else has. It means that even if our current residence is in Corinth or Ephesus or Philippi, we live as if we were in the city of the Lord and the king himself. Our king has declared the diseases are healed. So we live presuming that he has the power and the authority to defeat sickness. We live differently that way. Our king has declared that evil is vanquished, so we refuse to live in fear of what harm the enemy might want to inflict. Our king has declared that his kingdom is on the move, so we move with him as he heralds his good news. We proclaim he reigns, he reigns. Jesus is Lord. That's how we live. It's a, it's a little bit different, isn't it? You see, we don't live according to the rules and the regulations of of this world. We willingly submit to the authorities as King Jesus has told us we can. But our spirits find their home in a different place. Our spirits find their foundation in a kingdom we can't really fully see yet because we have signposts that are pointing into a dense fog But that doesn't mean that the signposts are wrong. It doesn't mean that they aren't trustworthy. It doesn't mean that we can't know and rely on the Word of God to point us and to guide us and to direct us and to be our all sufficient rule. It just means that we have faith and that we focus on what is unseen. And so our commitment to those things cannot and should not be shaken. No matter how many hot tubs in this hotel are gonna break, Jesus is Lord. Eternity has begun. The kingdom is now, and nothing can change that. I wanna invite you to bow your head and receive the word that God has for us today in an attitude of prayer. And as we do that, I want to give you an invitation. Uh, Maybe you want to call this an altar call. I recognize most of the faces in the room today. And so that I I know that many of you would say, well, I've already received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I've already become a Christian. And I honor that. I believe that. I trust that. And I respect that. But I'm going to give an altar call um, nonetheless. And I hope that's okay with you. Because I want to give you an altar call that perhaps is different than than some of the others that you've heard. I want to give you an altar call that that sounds a little bit odd. One of the things that I I referenced, you know, hearing phrases and statements at funerals that make me go, hmm, is that really what the Bible says? One of the, the phrases that qualifies is, you know, we don't like to say that so and so died we like to be a little bit more polite about that. And so we have these euphemisms for for death. And oftentimes at funerals, and and, and I do this, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody, I'm just saying it's it's the language we use, right? We will say that the beloved brother or sister stepped into eternity, right? Oh, sister so-and-so, after 95 years of faithful service, stepped into eternity. Brother so-and-so served the Lord well, and last week stepped into eternity. But in light of these afterwards, I wonder if that's really the best phrase for us to talk about. You see, death is not the beginning of eternity. That's why we say we don't fear death. It's why we say death has lost its grip on me. It's why we say death, where is your victory? Like what's the point, death? Grave, where is your stay? You see, as the people of God, this is no longer something to worry or be afraid about. <coughs> because in the sense of eternity, when a Christian reaches the point of death, nothing changes. Nothing changes. Because those who follow Jesus, those who are loyal and allegiance to King Jesus, those who are called by his name, have already stepped into eternity. Amen. Eternity began when you gave your life to your king. And so I would invite you today to consider the fact that if you are in fact a loyal follower of King Jesus, that you have already stepped into eternity. My altar call then today is who's ready to step into eternity? And no, I'm not trying to be freaky about saying, who's ready to die? I'm just saying, who's ready to step into eternity? Would you prayerfully and thoughtfully consider that? As Lord Jesus, we tell you that we are the people. And we stand here looking at signposts that we don't always understand. We stand here reading and having read from your word and and admittedly sometimes being confused or uncertain about what precisely that means. Because you said it, but we can't see it. And we are so conditioned to believe only what we can see. And so my prayer for my friends today is, Lord, give us eyes of faith. Give us eyes of faith that know how to focus on what is unseen. Give us eyes of faith that know how to be assured and confident of that which we do not yet fully understand. Make us that people, that holy nation, that precious possession of yours. That you created to exist in all eternity. Church, with that in mind, I ask you this. Who's ready to step into eternity? In the quietness of your heart, would you tell the Lord Jesus today, I'm here. I'm here. Maybe... Maybe I've always been here and I just, I didn't realize it. I never thought of it that way. I didn't understand it. Maybe I've never fully been here before, but Lord Jesus Christ, in this moment, I am here. I am stepping into eternity. No longer will I worry about the broken hot tub in the hotel you've put me in. Because I know that there is an eternal kingdom. I know that even one day when my body is buried in the ground, it is only a marker that it too will rise. Imperishable, as the word says, that I will be in the place you have designed me for. Lord Jesus, I'm ready to step into eternity. God, help us to live in that reality today. Help your people to be a people who understand that there's no longer anything to wait for that the promises of your word in Jesus Christ are yes and amen. When God says be healed, the testimony of our faith says yes. When God says be released, the testimony of our faith says yes. When God says be raised up, the testimony of our faith says yes. We will not be a people who say, just a minute. We will not be a people who say, I'm not sure yet, check with me later. We are a yes people. We are an amen people. We are an eternity people, because that is who you have created us to be. And so we thank you today, Lord, that that much you have made clear. That much you have made clear. We still cannot fully describe or picture or understand every nuance, but that much you have made clear. We are an eternity people. Mark it on our hearts. Mark it on our hands as we use them in this life. Make us heralds of that truth because your kingdom is advancing. We pray it today in the holy and sufficient name of our Lord and Savior and King Jesus Christ. And everybody says Amen. 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 Thank you for not diving into the obvious joke this morning. I know what eternity is because Dan preaches. <laughs> 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 yeah. Thank you, brother. Brother Columbia was there. All right. Blessing upon you. We'll see you next week. Afterwards about heaven.